Our sermon this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 6 this morning. I know the slide that you'll see on the screen is going to begin in verse 7, but we'll catch up. We're going to start in Genesis 3 and verse 6. Hear now the word of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Father, we come now to hear from you. We pray that you would help us to see the impact of sin in our life. And that you, by your grace, would give us the power to repent, turn from whatever sin besieges us, that we may receive the joy that accompanies obedience. Help us now, we pray, through your Spirit, as your Word is taught. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2002, a handful of Boeing employees decided to steal a life raft from a 747. They were successful in getting it out of the airplane and home, even successful in taking it for a float down the river when they were quite surprised to see the Coast Guard helicopter approaching them. You see, it turned out when they inflated the raft, the homing on the emergency locator was activated, and the Coast Guard came to their rescue. They don't work for Boeing anymore. Your sin has a way of finding you out. I think God intends it to be that way in order to bring us to confession and repentance. Here we see the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve, has found them out. But unfortunately, as you will notice, we work our way through this text, that they didn't confess or repent. Rather, they covered it up. They hid from God. They blamed others. We... uh, established last time we were in Genesis 3 that this is perhaps one of the most crucial chapters in the Bible. For in Genesis chapter 3, we understand how we got in the mess in which we are in. We understand why we act the way we do and why we think the way we think. As we see our parents, Adam and Eve, follow the devil rather than God and join this satanic rebellion against our Maker. In fact, you notice back in verse 4 of chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did it work? Do you feel like God this morning? I'm afraid it was a lie. It was a deceit. And this lie has terrible consequences. When we first started in Genesis 3, we saw the origin of sin. Today, we begin to consider the corruption of sin. In fact, theologians have um, said sin has two consequences on us. One, we could consider the punishment upon sin. If you sin, this will happen to you. We'll look at that next week, God willing. The other uh, impact or consequence of sin is the corruption of sin, or sometimes called the pollution of sin. That is, sin actually changes who you are. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you act. We see this very clearly as Adam and Eve go on trial and God comes to them with questions. Where are you? Who told you? Have you eaten? And we shall see the corruption that has already taken root in their lives, in their answers, and in their actions. They have become different people. Yet this is just not the story of Adam and Eve. Genesis is just not the story of what happened. It's the story of what happens. And we will see, I think, someone very familiar. This will explain who we are. This will explain the help that we need as we will see our own corruption in our life because of sin. And so let's consider the corruption of sin this morning in three steps. First of all, sin corrupts our closest relationships. Second, sin corrupts our fellowship with God. And third, sin corrupts our personal responsibility. So note first with me, sin corrupts our personal relationships. We see this here in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and that they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so you see they, in some sense, gained knowledge, just as the devil said. But it was not the knowledge of what it's like to be God. Quite, quite simply, their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked. They gained knowledge of their nudity. It was not sim- what they bargained for. And as we've already established that at the end of Genesis chapter 2, this, this unfolding of what it's like to live in perfection, we saw in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed not because they had perfect bodies, but because they had a perfect marriage. And they were felt free to be totally vulnerable in front of their spouse with no fear of disapproval. Then we get here in verse 7, and suddenly they're filled with shame at their nudity. It's because the security of their marriage has been destroyed. Sin is already impacting their closest relationship. The one viewing my nakedness, the one to whom I'm vulnerable, is no longer worthy of my trust. And so the intimacy that God intended for their marriage is assaulted, and it moves off to estrangement. And this has happened, of course, countless times, not simply in our parents' lives, but many marriages would testify that the intimacy that is to be in marriage, often through sin, leads to estrangement. Their solution, as we saw last week, was that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, they don't repent. They don't confess. They don't seek restoration. They don't say, what, what, what happened to our relationship? They simply cover up their sin. This is, as we uh, declared, is the first false religion. 
Man's attempt at self-atonement. Man's attempt to deal with sin on their own. This is the fig leaf religion. And every other false religion in this world is simply just another evolution of this fig leaf, self-atoning, sin-covering, false religion. For man, if he could just cover up his shame and guilt, he doesn't have to worry about the sin which produces it. And we see this terrible impact in these closest relationships. You've experienced this, I trust, that sin erects barriers between you and the those whom you love. You ever get in a fight with your wife? And maybe in the middle of it, and it's just perhaps going on a little too long, you try to hug your wife in the middle of the fight? I've heard this hypothetically, so don't take my word for it. But, but I've heard that she will recoil from you as if you have a disease. You see, what that is, is a, is a attempt for a quick fix, isn't it? It's a, it's a attempt to slap a fig leaf right on this problem. What sin has done, it has erected a massive barrier between those whom you ought to be in a closest relationship. Sin begins to corrupt those to whom you are to have intimacy and fellowship with. I can't trust you anymore. You have sinned against me. I can't allow you to see me in vulnerability. I wonder if there's disharmony in your home or in your workplace or in your church. I wonder if part of it is because of your sin. Sin will push away people that should be close to you. It corrupts our closest relationships. But you also see, secondly, that sin corrupts our fellowship with God. Note verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Now, I've heard this text preached, and I trust you have, and usually it goes this way, that God is in the garden on a stroll. It's nice and cool out. He's got a bluebird on his shoulder, and there's deers frolicking in the distance. This idea of this cool of the day, this this peaceful scene. But I'm not sure that's the theological significance of that phrase, the cool of the day. You, You know, that word cool could also be translated wind. The wind of the day. And quite often, especially in the Old Testament, when God comes to take an accounting of sin, comes in judgment, he comes in the sense of of, uh, the wind of judgment. Remember, after Job and his companions debated this theology of just proving their foolishness for some 40 chapters, and God shows up as a whirlwind. Or Isaiah the prophet would say, All flesh is like grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the wind of the Lord blows on it. Or perhaps Psalm chapter 1 declares the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. I believe what Adam and Eve heard was the sound of God's thundering judicial majesty. This was for them the day of the Lord. And we see in verse 10, they were afraid. For the first time in their life, they feared God. They heard God was coming and immediately realized that their fig leaves were insufficient. You see, we're happy with fig leaves. We can live with fig leaf religion. We're content with that. But everyone who who slaps fig leaves upon their sin will one day stand before God and realize that that fig leaf was utterly insufficient. It does nothing before God. And so God comes, and we note what they, how they respond at the end of verse 8 as we read, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. No, I just simply think that's dumb. You have God showing up. He comes to hear from them. 
And they think, there's a shrub. Quick, hide. He'll never find us here. He's the all-sufficient, all-knowing, ever-present creator of all things. And they hide from him. I thought about titling this second point that sin makes you stupid. This, to me, is the height of folly. But the point that a point of their hiding is not the stupidity in it. I think it's the tragedy. I mean, where is God's estate keeper? Where is the man who he gave authority to name the animals? The man and the woman whom he has created in his image who have been designed to rejoice in the delightful fellowship of that seventh day rest and worship. Oh, they are hiding from him. Ducking behind a tree. They are made to run to God. Father! Father, here I am! It reminds me of my children when I come home, as I've testified to you in the past. When I open the door, there's often an impromptu parade in my honor as I'm besieged by child after child. Daddy, Daddy! As they rejoice. And yet sometimes a child has a rough day. Sometimes there may be one of those sins that mommy says... You'll wait till daddy comes home. Maybe they dishonored my wife or one of my boys have harmed my daughter or perhaps they have told a lie. And that child is missing. And I immediately recognize it. This is not all of them. There is one who is away from their father. Sin has robbed them of the joy of their father's presence. They flee. This is what sin causes us to do, flee from God, to run from Him, not because God has changed, not because He has harmed us in any way, not because He has done us any evil. All they have received from God is good. They have wronged Him. They have returned His good for evil. They are like fugitives, fleeing from the scene of the crime. Of course, you know what they should have done. They should have ran to Him, shouldn't they? With confessions, contrition, repentance, seeking mercy. Instead, they run and hide. And to be honest, I laugh at them because I think it's so silly. But when I'm done laughing, I think about my own life. I wonder, where do you hide? Or, or perhaps, what do you hide? As if God does not know. I think it is equally foolish. We're just like them. We sin. And then we have a tendency to cover it up, usually with more sin. I think this passage reveals our heart as we see God call out to Adam in verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? It's not because God didn't know. He knew where Adam was. But God wanted Adam to know where he was. Where has your sin taken you, he is asking. Are you as wise as Satan promised, or are you as dead as I had warned you? I appreciate what Ken Hughes says as he describes this scene here in verse 9. So Adam emerged, realizing that God had found him, rose from his hiding place, shame-faced, wearing his ridiculous fig leaves, mumbling his reply. He answers here in verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And so Adam says he did three things. He heard, he feared, and he hid. You notice what's missing. I sinned. There's no mention of his sin at all. No omission of wrongdoing. He says, I heard you were coming. You see, the cause of Adam's problem is not his sin, but it is the presence of God. He he could tolerate his rebellion as long as God doesn't show up. But when God shows up, then he must have trouble. Fallen man cannot 
tolerate God in our sin. This is why we run from God in the midst of sin, why we do not seek after Him. He says, after He heard, He feared. Fear in God's presence is always a sign of sin. The Bible says in 1 John 4 and verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. You see, before they expected only good from God, but now they expect wrath from Him, and so they run from Him in fear. Their solution, therefore, is thirdly, I hid. The solution is to remove themselves from God. This is what we have done for millennia. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, we, we uh, deny judgment, we ignore sin, we exclude God from our thoughts. As we see Adam standing before God as this rebellious criminal who no longer wants God at all. He is afraid, but he is not remorseful. This is what happens, friends, when we sin. It erects not only barriers between us and those whom we love, it actually erects barriers between us and God. And I know you've experienced this. We all have. We are made for God. We are made to rejoice in God's presence, not to run from Him. I think perhaps this is the worst part of sin is that it thrusts us away from the very source of our joy and delight. In our sin, we don't talk to Him. We don't even want to talk about Him. We don't want to think about Him. We don't pray to Him. We don't read His Word. We stop going to church. It robs us of that intimacy with Him. We are become like Jonah, boarding our ship to Tarshish, taking us anywhere but to the presence of God. I appreciate an encounter that Dr. Donald Barnhouse, the great preacher of old, once had on a college campus. After he was invited to speak there, he was asked after the meeting to, to go to the woman's dorms and have some comments there. And so he went to this woman's dorm and he spoke briefly and answered some questions. But when he finished, he immediately recognized that there was a girl that was clearly upset with what he had said. With her face scowling, she approached Dr. Barnhouse and said, I used to believe that, but I don't believe it anymore. He asked her, what kind of family do you come from? And the girl said that she had come from a Christian family. He then asked, do you have a Bible? Yes, she replied. Do you read it? He asked. She said, I used to read it, but I don't read it anymore. I told you I don't believe in that stuff any longer. He pushed on and said, can you remember when you stopped reading it? She said she stopped reading it around Thanksgiving. Tell me, he asked, what happened in your life around November the 10th? At this, the girl began to cry. And it soon came out at that time that she was starting to live in sin with her boyfriend. And it was because of this sin that she could no longer stand the gaze of God through God's word. How are you doing? How's your fellowship with your father? Your joy with God? I wonder if there are some here who are avoiding spending time with him. Because you don't want to hear his questions. You don't want him to probe deep into your heart. You know, I think the good news here, I mean, they're, they're, the wonderful news is that even in our sin, it makes us run from God. But you notice who comes looking. God does. God comes seeking. Now, he's coming for them to give an account, but that's not all. As we will see next time, God willing, he comes to offer them grace and hope. You know, he doesn't even speak to the serpent. He doesn't even bother to talk to him. He lets him go. But not this man and this woman. They hide, they cower, they run, they sin, and God comes to rescue them. 
I think this is the history of humanity. You want to summarize history? Man sins. God comes to save. Jesus Christ Himself said that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And here we see God coming for them. Maybe there are some here today who are in sin, who are hiding from God. Maybe He's coming to you even this very moment. Maybe you hear Him speaking into your heart that He is looking for you. If God is calling you out of sin this morning, friends, please know that He is calling you to give you grace. He is calling you to give you mercy and forgiveness. He loves you so much that even though we join the devil's rebellion, the satanic pursuit of Godhood, He still pursues us. Some of you know this pursuit. You've been running for weeks or months or maybe even years and God continues to come after you, continues to call you. What are you doing Why are you hiding? He does so because He loves you. And He wants to restore you. This is the God we love. Even though our sin corrupts our relationship with Him, He still comes for us. Well, you see, lastly, what sin does, it corrupts our personal relationships. We see God has a couple questions for Adam in verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And so he wants to know where you've learned this information from. And have you eaten from this tree? In which you notice he says, I commanded you not to eat. The focus is not on the command, but on the one who commanded it. They were made to obey God and do so because they loved him and they trust him. You see, obedience is a matter of love for God. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of following after Him. And so he asks them these questions, not so that he can become informed, but he's drawing Adam out in order to get him to confess and to repent. But far from repenting, he simply compounds his sin by excusing himself and shifting the blame. You notice what he says in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. He begins by blaming the woman. It's her fault. I just ate what she gave me. She was cooking supper, and I I just ate whatever she handed over. It's her fault. I'm the victim here. I need some therapy. I, I need some medicine. I need more education. I've been wrong. There's been a great injustice done against me, God. Don't you understand? I need justice against her. In fact, you notice even how he refers to her. Not as my wife, as she is referred to in verse 8, but as the woman. He distanced himself from her. He is no longer committed to protecting her. He takes his stand against her as if God should have the death penalty fall upon her. If someone must bear punishment, it should be her. Now, I perhaps don't need to remind you, back in Genesis 2, we remember the delight that he had when God presented this woman to him. This wonderful, incredible gift that God, and he he just erupted in this song of joy that at last I have found this companion. And now, immediately after sin, he begins to sick God on her. You see how his sin has ravaged him, how it has changed him. He is no longer the man that we saw in Genesis 2. He has become a murderer. He would have his wife to be executed rather than accept responsibility. This, I believe here in verse 12, is the origin of domestic abuse. As Adam turns upon his wife, 
He is willing to let her die if he doesn't have to be responsible. I got the wrong woman, God. Everything was going great. We were having a good time. And then the woman showed up and I, and I got the wrong woman. I think a lot of people feel like they got the wrong woman or they got the wrong husband. If I just get a new one, things will get better. And this is what Adam is, is, is explaining here. If, I, if, if she's the wrong one, she's brought me into sin. Of course, he would not get a new woman and he would live for 930 years. Do you think he ever heard about this again? <laughs> you think that chasm there caused here was ever fully healed? I imagine that this was brought up a time or two. Of course, you've seen this, haven't you? Yes, I'm having an affair, but if you knew my spouse, you would understand. I'm sorry I threw the television out the window, but you make me so angry when you speak to me that way. If you knew my parents, my upbringing, then you would know why I do this. My father always lost his temper. It's just what I've learned from him. Yes, I neglect the church, but they treat me so poorly. Yes, I will not forgive, but if you knew what they did to me. Yes, I spoke to you harshly, but I had a really bad day. So the day's to blame, not me. You see, if we could blame someone else for our sin, we don't have to change. We don't have to repent if it's someone else's fault. If you want me to stop sinning, then you need to repent, is what Adam is saying, is what we echo. But of course, he does not only just blame the woman, but he blames God, as you've already noticed, when he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He believes the devil. He accuses God of not being good. You shouldn't have given her to me, God. Lord, you have sinned. It was your mistake. It is Kent Hughes who imagines this scene by saying he stands in court and builds his case against God. He would act as the judge of God and in brash defiance, he calls evil good and good evil and charges God with guilt. I can think of nothing more able to show sin's horror, he says, than this miserable tendency of men to blame the holy, all-wise God for our transgressions. And I would say Adam is not unique in this. Students will cheat and rationalize it by saying God has given me a hard professor or a busy schedule. Men will give themselves to lust, saying God has given me these appetites and passions that I cannot resist. Men will give themselves or women to anger and say this is just the way that I am. People will steal, cheat on their taxes, refuse to give to the church because God has made me poor. Sin, sin produces in us a, almost this desire to refuse to accept responsibility. And it's just not in Adam. We see it in Eve as well. For we read in verse 13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it, she says. Now I will say, to her credit, she implicates the devil. Adam's willing to let him go scot-free. doesn't even bring him up. Amazingly, she doesn't blame her husband after what she just heard. But you do see she follows her husband's lead. This passive victim, as she sifts the blame, they will merely admit their sin, but they will deny responsibility for it. There is no pleas, therefore, for mercy or forgiveness. They're victims. It reminds me of the Menendez brothers. Remember them when I was growing up, these boys who murdered their parents and then asked for mercy on grounds that they were orphans. They're victims. People are victims. It's always nice when your sins are the fault of someone else's. 
But I will remind you, the devil is often called the tempter. You know why he's called the tempter? Because he can't force you to sin. He's not called the forcer. He tempts us. If he could force you to sin, he wouldn't worry about tempting you and manipulating you and deceiving you. But he can't force you. You and I have to choose it every time we choose to sin. And because we do so, we are responsible for it. And so let's just affirm this morning that our sin is our fault. It is not the devil's. It is not God's. It is not our spouse or our boss or our church. It's not our children or our upbringing or our circumstances. I would encourage us not to follow our Father's lead here. Let us stop blaming others. God, as you shall see next week, is not buying it. My hope as we look at this passage is that you will see the corruption that sin puts in us, how it changes us, how it eats away in us, how it pollutes us, how it makes us people that God does not intend us to be, that we would tell God to go away, we would sell out our spouse, we would blame God, we would agree with the devil. One commentator puts it this way, look at Adam as he stands in God's court, having abandoned his wife, quit his job, plunged his family into danger and poverty and defected to the side of the devil and still audaciously accusing God of sin. And all he can do is whine about his circumstances and about how uncomfortable he feels. Adam is ancient, but his family likeness is all too modern. We inherit these tendencies. And we must be aware of them, that we can turn from them. And so God puts Adam and Eve on trial. The verdict is they are found guilty. The sentence? Well, that's interesting. You would think perhaps he would be done with them right then and there, that he would cast them into hell, strike them down. But he does not. You see, God wants to redeem them and their children And he will do so not by failing to punish their sin. See, wrath is going to come, but he will not pour it out upon Adam or Eve, nor shall he pour it out upon you, Christian. For he has poured it out upon the second Adam, Jesus Christ. What was lost in the first Adam was being regained in the second. In fact, I find it interesting that that both Adam and, and the second Adam, Jesus, had their moments in their garden. Adam in his garden of Eden, Jesus in his garden of Gethsemane. You know, of course, that Adam's garden was a place where God declared to be very good, where there was no human sin. There was just God's favor, God's provision, God's fellowship. And yet they spent their time not talking to God, but the devil. And they turned from this overwhelming and delightful prospect of what God had given them and embraced the devil's rebellion against the Maker. It seems they just simply heard his case and sided with him. There wasn't much debate at all, no real struggle. And because of that, they plunged all of humanity into misery. They carried their descendants over this cliff of sin. And then thousands of years later, this man, Jesus, comes. And he has lived a perfect life. And he goes to his garden. But his garden is much unlike the garden found in Genesis chapter 2. It is not a garden of provision. It is not a garden of, of overwhelming blessings. But it is a garden of overwhelming agony as he contemplated the wrath that he would have to endure for you and I. And therefore, he didn't bother to speak to the devil, but spoke to his father and our father as he urged his apostles to pray. And then he poured out his soul to our God. And we see the full measure of what Christ is willing to bear in that garden. 
as we see His great agony, as we see Him sweat these drops of blood, as we see Him pour out His soul in heartbreaking prayer, not once, not twice, but three times, praying, Father, if there is but another way, let this cup of Your wrath pass from me. His soul shrank in horror, and yet He would not disobey. He would move forward to the cross, and there upon the cross, He would take all the wrath of God for your sin and my sin upon Himself and for the sin of all who would believe that though we are guilty, the sentence will be passed on to another. In fact, I read this trial here in Genesis chapter 3, and I believe it to be a historical account, but I also believe that it points to a future trial. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom they must give an account. You see, one day God will summon all people before Himself. Some will not want to come to that trial. But when they are called by name, they shall come. I wonder if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian. You've been running from your Maker. You've been hiding from Him. I tell you, based upon the authority of God's Word, there's a day in which He will call you by name from your hiding place, from behind that shrub, and you shall come before Him. He will ask you questions on that day, questions that perhaps you prefer not to answer. What have you done? He will ask. He will want to know about your life. And if you are outside of Christ, you will pay the full penalty of your sin. But I won't be hiding on that day. And Christian, either will you. And it won't be because you are better than your non-Christian neighbor. It is because you are not clothed in silly figlies, but you are clothed in the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. And for the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man. How much more Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He is our sin bearer. We pass our blame onto others. Jesus says, pass it on to me. The buck stops with Jesus. And he takes all of our blame upon himself that we may become God's children. And so we are going to, in a moment... Remember that great sin-bearing sacrifice that you and I have now been clothed with His righteous blood through His death and through His resurrection. We come to the Lord's Supper and I invite all who are Christians to participate in this meal. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are delighted that you are here. We praise God that you've come. But we would like you to refrain from participating in this meal as the plates are passed by you if you would simply and discreetly just pass it on to the person next to you. This is a meal for Christians as Scripture instructs us. And for us Christians, as we consider that sin continues to plague us and we continue to to dabble in it, we continue to struggle with it, perhaps even you, believer, you are hiding Because you know God is calling you from some sin. Perhaps some sin you've been struggling with for weeks or months. Perhaps some sin you committed this morning or last night. Friends, we do not want to come to this meal 
with unrepentance in our heart. This is a meal for sinners, but for repentant sinners. And so we do, as is our custom, want to give you an opportunity and all an opportunity to confess any known sin in our lives before the Lord. For the Scripture tells us, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself therefore and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so will you join me in silent prayer as you ask the Spirit of God to search your heart that you may turn sin over to Him. Let us pray together.